Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas guys Texas talking. I'm Emily Ramshaw. I'm the editor in chief of the Texas Tribune. And I'm joined by our executive editor, Ross Ramsey, who, if Howdy. you're a TribCast listener, you know him already. You listen to us bicker with Evan Smith almost every week. Um, we have four incredible guests for you this evening. I'm going to introduce two of them and then tell you about two others who are going to be joining us up on stage in just a little while. First, on my immediate left, we have New Yorker staff writer, author, screenwriter, playwright, and Pulitzer Prize winner, Larry Wright. Please join me in welcoming Larry. <laughs> Emily, you left out band member. And That's band like, oh, Please, we're yes. playing the gig tonight. By the way, yeah. if you go to the party on the mall tonight, you will hear Larry's amazing band, The really? Hoodoo. They yeah. are badass. You will want to be yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we have Karen Tumulty, the Washington Post political correspondent, alum of Time Magazine and the LA Times, and just an all-around amazing woman. Please join me in welcoming Karen. And alum of here. And alum of UT. Uh, yes. And so the format for this is going to be that we're going to have 20 minutes of, of moderated conversation with these two, then 10 minutes of audience Q&A. And then we're going to turn it over and we're going to introduce two more panelists who I'll tell you about when they come up here on stage. Um, so we'll get underway with these two for starters. But uh, before we start, I just a little housekeeping. Uh, I wanted to give a really hearty thanks to Houston Tillotson University and Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. They're our sponsors for this evening and they allow us to be able to do this. So thank you, thank you to our sponsors. So, Karen and Larry, you both are writers who have looked closely at Texas. Uh, you look closely at Texas from a national perspective, sometimes even from an international perspective, and both of you have reported on issues that are near and dear to us, but also to the nation. What are your perspectives right now on how Texas is perceived on the national stage? How, how do people think of Texas in Washington? How do people think of Texas internationally? You want to start, Karen? <laughs> Well, you know, it's as long as I've covered politics, um, the Democrats have had this idea that Texas is it's just on the very, very edge of coming this way. And it, it is, uh, it's really uh, helpful to get back here and occasionally uh, write a story that is a reality check about really the kinds of difficulties um, they face. And when I have friends who are non-Texans who come down to do political stories in Texas, I will always tell them what my friend Patty Kilday Hart told me, one of the first stories I did down here, which is that in Texas politics, there's only one number you need to know. And that number is 750,000. Because in a state of, what is it now, 29 million people? 27, yeah. 27 million people that hasn't elected a Democrat statewide to any office since 1994, 750,000 votes is what it takes to win a Republican primary. And, um, you know, I think that once you start looking at it from that little piece of math, a lot of the things that don't make sense about Texas to outsiders suddenly become very clear. Well, my experience working for the New Yorker is that people outside of Texas hate Texas. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are people that love it and move here. So it's a, it has a strong cultural imprint. 
probably, there are very few places in the country that have as defined an image as Texas has. And, and you know, I find that we're held responsible for everything that people don't like. And um, we're like we're the national id of some sort. And uh, my editor, uh, David Rimnick, asked me to explain Texas because he couldn't understand why I live here. Uh, and I've wondered it myself sometimes, but uh, I, I reminded him I get paid by the word, and that's a really big question you just asked. Uh, but I love Texas, despite all of its, you know, misgivings and so on. It, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating and, and, and in ways, deeply intimate community. Um, I've been in the last month in Houston. Uh, I was supposed to be opening a play, and the theater drowned. But uh, it's just such a wonderful community, and see how that uh, community puts itself back together. And you know, there's there's there's, there's since no sense of victimhood. It's just, we're gonna take charge here. And that's a, you know, as a Texan, I say that's very Texan. And yet sometimes when I look at Donald Trump and I wonder when is Manhattan gonna be held responsible for somebody <laughs> like that? You know, if he, if he had a cowboy hat rather than a gimme cap on, right. everybody would recognize him as a Texan, right? We'd be dead. We would, ne we would never live it down. <laughs> I mean, Ross, you and I were talking about the other day about the UT slogan, right? You know, what starts here changes the world. Right. Right? Uh, did I get that right, UT folks? All right. Um, and Ross, you were making sort of the, the comparisons to, to California. You know, California used to be sort of the gold standard right. conservative state, uh, spreading its conservative mission to other states. How does that compare to Texas today? Well, I was making the comparison that, you know, California used to be the seedbed of good and bad ideas for Washington. And they sent them Nixon and they sent Reagan and, you know, there was a California period there, and we're kind of in a Texas period. I don't know where, where we are in it. We may be at the end of it. We may be in the middle of it. But it seems like, in a lot of ways, this is the seedbed for really good and really bad ideas. You know, the, um, you know, part of it's where the, you know, it's the keystone state for the Republicans. It's the state they have to win. It's the biggest state on the Republican map. And um, we keep sending people up there, you know, just since we started the Tribune, we've sent, you know, several bottle rockets in the direction of Washington, D.C. Rick Perry was a bottle rocket. You know, Ted Cruz was a bottle rocket. We'll have a couple of bottle rockets on stage this weekend. But, um, I, you know, I, 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 think in, I think in some ways this whole Texas thing has caught on. It may be why New York is um, unhappy. Well, it's not... They are unhappy, did, yes. Did, but did it, Texas Monthly, when you were at Texas Monthly, did you guys hate New York? No, it was still New York hated Texas okay. back then. It's been a long-term thing. But when you mentioned California, what's so fascinating to me is the way Texas, Texas politicians, in particular our governor, demonizes California as if it were communist China. Uh, you know, it don't Californicate our state. And, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's just fascinating to me that uh, the, and these are two states that are in many ways are very similar. Right. You know, we are both majority-minority states. We have very different tax problems and so on, but a lot of similar outcomes despite all of our differences. And the, the Texas-New York axis, because, you know, to a lot of the country, New York seems like a foreign country too, right. yeah. but I do remember in the 2016 campaign that Ted Cruz started using New York values, right, thinking right. he was going to really hurt Donald Trump. And there was this moment in a debate when Trump said, you want to hear about New York values? I was in New York on 9-11. I'll tell you all about New York values. 
and it just you could you could almost see Ted Cruz just like on that debate stage being I've, right. being completely deflated. Yep. Mm -hmm. Somebody was, will pull Houston on you know right. Donald Trump maybe. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you, you brought up Rick Perry. You brought up Ted Cruz. What are the perceptions from Washington or from New York about, about those two guys in particular? Because they're, pre they're pretty familiar. They're pretty familiar for us We have to go home. over this ground again, Emily. <laughs> well, you know, we are going to hear Al Franken in a little while, so you'll get well, an that, earful on Ted and Cruz. Of course, that's, you know, the, the most famous page out of Al Franken's book is... It, it, you know, not just Washington, but the very small part of Washington that is the Senate chamber, uh, Al Franken makes the point that Ted Cruz is the, the least liked guy in the place. Um, and, you know, I, I think that Ted Cruz was here to, you know, when he arrived in Washington, he was a man in a hurry to make a big impression. And, you know, I think probably had those presidential aspirations all, all along. Um, you do see a lot of tension between the two senators from Texas uh, over and over again. And I remember last time I was here at the Tribune Festival and, and John Cornyn was on stage, I guess it must have been 2015, because he was talking about, you know, I don't know who the Republican Party is going to pick, but the one thing we can't pick is like some first-term senator who hadn't even finished <laughs> his term because, you know, don't we have that with Barack Obama? Mm. And I just thought it was the most withering thing you could say to anybody in a Republican primary. Yep. And now tomorrow they'll be on, or Sunday they'll be on stage together. Yes. <laughs> yep. What about you? What about, what about Rick Perry in particular? Well, I, you know, the thing about Rick Perry, and this was true, I think, of George W. Bush, and these guys despite the fact that a lot of East Coasters hate them, they're charming. You know, if you know them, they're, they're fun to be around, and they, you, know, you may not agree with their governance, but they're not like Ted Cruz in that people hate them. Uh, and <laughs> there's a, I think you can draw a distinction when, uh, uh, I remember in, in Franken's book, he talks about encountering W and thinking, holy mackerel, I like this guy. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, George Bush was a pivotal period in our political history because that was the, the moment Texas was turning entirely, the House and the Senate were turning red, but it's still Democrat. And so uh, he, he, he made allies of the speaker and, and, the, and the lieutenant governor. Right. And, uh, and they were, it was a very effective team. And based on that, his image as a bipartisan governor, it really helped him quite a lot. Well, that's gone, gone, gone. You know, the, the, the idea that there's any kind of bipartisanship, there's not a biparty. Uh, there is the Republican Party that is in, you know, total control and the Democrats are in the car seat. So Texas led the rest of the country to that too then. Yeah. That's true. We have been, uh, and you know, the other thing is California's congressional delegation is not growing, and Texas grows every centennial, every every census. Right. We're supposed to get three more, I think, next time. Is the right. early so projection? They look at our, you know, congressional delegation as this, you know, in, immense force in Washington that is only growing and growing, while other entities are not. Ross, I mean, how do you feel like the perceptions of statewide leaders in Texas have changed over the course of your career? I mean, you know, have has the sort of it's persona not my fault, <laughs> <laughs> right? We'll blame it on you. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you feel like it's it's changed? You know, from the characters like George W. Bush and or Rick Perry to to the kind of statewides that we're electing in Texas now. You know, the the state used to run contrary in some ways to national politics. You know, there was state politics separate from national politics, and you would see some 
direction in you know, national politics that just didn't take hold here. And that began to um, dissolve a little bit with Ronald Reagan. And in this last election, the last two or three elections, Texas and the national, Texas and national politics have been in hard parallel. So now you see Texas politicians much more in line with national politicians. If you hear a set of issues or you hear a set of positions, you know, listening to Fox News or whatever, you're likely to hear the same set of things at a town hall, you know, run by a Texas congressional candidate or even somebody running for the Texas House or the Texas Senate. It's much more in line with national politics and a little bit less contrary and a little bit less uh, distinct. I think the candidates are, you know, it's harder for oddballs to get elected in Texas than it used to be. We used to ha we had a bunch of candidates along the way who might have been good governors, bad governors, good lieutenant governors, bad lieutenant governors, but were kind of distinct personalities and could get away with a lot. And now everybody's so polished and, and similar, um, we've kind of lost that edge. Although I've got to tell you, looking forward to the next year's elections, I think the single most interesting house race in the entire country to watch is going to be Texas 23, mm -hmm. Will Hurd's district. It's been swinging back and forth. Will Hurd, Republican, uh, African-American Republican, one Former of only CIA three, agent. Yeah. Yeah. one of only three in Congress. And I think the dynamics of that district, which also has something like a third of the U.S.-Mexico border in it, right. are going to be just like the perfect sort of little microcosm of every important political question that's going on in the national midterms. And this district is the size of Kentucky. You know, it's, it's just hard to believe. You know, it takes forever to drive across it. Mm -hmm. Well, so we've talked about how Texas is perceived nationally, even internationally. If we're here at home in Texas, how afraid should we be of the world around us right now? How afraid should we be of Washington? How afraid should we be of you know, North Korea, of the political climate internationally? How should Texans feel right now? You know, not as afraid as I think Texans like to make themselves. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like, again, when Rick Perry's thinking of running for president and he's like, you know, sending the National Guard down to the border. Right. Um, I do get a sense, and it, it to me at least feels different from my growing up in Texas that people can kind of work themselves into sometimes more of a frenzy than is warranted. I, I agree with Karen that we get a little hysterical. Um, although, for whatever reason, uh, we were on North Korea's first strike week list. <laughs> Austin was. Well, it's, good to, it's good to be good at something. I know. We, we finally achieved a kind of, you know, <laughs> greatness in terms of international I thought we were just buying for standing. Amazon's headquarters. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, what do you mean you're not shooting at us? Right. Uh, but I think the problems that, you know, the real problems that Texans face are ones that we've made for ourselves. And, and what are some of those problems in your opinion? Uh, the education is terrible here. Uh, you know, our SAT scores are just at the bottom. Uh, we got, you know, the number of high school graduates. I mean, we, we're totally failing to create the kind of workers for the future. And we can go on to talk about infrastructure and jobs and stuff like that. Health, healthcare you know, health care is horrible. The absence of insurance. This is it's going to impoverish the, the state and make us less competitive. And the people that are leading us right now don't seem to have that on their agenda right now, right at all. Although healthcare is sort of a Texas phenomenon too, of sort of the haves and the have-nots. I mean, you go, you know, people come from the, all over the world to get world-class treatment at MD Anderson, and yet, before the Affordable Care Act passed, 
Texas, 25% of the population was uninsured, and uh, it was the highest in the country. It yeah. still Probably is. Still it's, only, is. It's, it's merely 16 now. Right. right. Improved yeah. slightly. But that's, that is a big improvement, but that'll right. go away if, if, if they abolish it. But them. it's still the worst. It's still the yeah, worst, yeah. yeah. Karen, we'll probably get asked about this more, but what should a lot of young people, particularly on this campus, are paying very close attention to the issues around DACA and uh, Trump's sort of, you know, schizophrenic jumping back and forth on this issue. What do you think we can anticipate out of Washington with regards to immigration reform and, in particular, uh, the future of, of young, young immigrants in this country? My gut tells me, and my gut, by the way, has been wrong on a lot of things. At 8.30 on election night, I was still writing America elects its first woman president, so <laughs> trust my gut for whatever. Um, it was, you know, my hunch is that Trump has come to recognize how completely radioactive this issue is for him politically, and the fact that he threw it into Congress's lap suggests to me that for everybody, the path of least resistance is gonna be to kind of leave it alone and pretend they didn't. Right. Yeah, Congress is kind of like a car that's stuck in the mud, and so putting DACA in there just makes sure that it's not going to go anywhere. All right, well, we're going to open it up to some Q&A for our panelists. There will be folks with um, microphones. Please make sure, since we're recording this, that you do speak into the microphone. So throw your hand up or stand up, and we'll get a microphone your way. Come on, who's going to be first? Right here. Yeah. We're going to dash down to you with the microphone. Hang on just one second. Like the price is right. Yep. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've been on. I didn't win. Um, my name is Lynn Porcell, and I just retired. I was a teacher in Texas for 15 years. Um, my, my thoughts on why the politicians are all the same is because of money. I mean, they're proving it now with the health care that the big donors supposedly were the ones that told them that they better pass health care, and they have to stay in line. Otherwise, we have to take the money out of politics again. You know, if we have to go back to you can't spend very much money, then average people stand a chance. But if it's billions of dollars to run for any office, even state offices, it's never going to be any different. So questions around the amount of money although, in politics. But yep. although I must say, going to Republican events all last year, there was no surer applause line for any Republican candidate than to say they were going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, but I think what we are discovering as we see what's happening in the polls now with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare is that that, I think, became a proxy for the Republican base's hatred of Obama. Uh, and, you know, now that people are beginning to realize, you know, what the actual policy was and how right. their lives would be different, they're, they're thinking of it a little differently. I don't think we're going to get money out of politics. You know, in, in Supreme Court even, you know, it's kind of put a stamp of approval on, you know, as much money as you want. But the only hope I have for changing the uh, skewed political system we have is that the court actually does take the gerrymandering case seriously and rule. This is the Wisconsin yeah, case that's in the Supreme this is, Court. You know, they, were, they would have to rule that gerrymandering for partisan purposes is uh, unconstitutional. And the case to be made, I think, is, would fault, I don't know if this is exactly the phrasing in the argument, but the, the wasted vote. You know, it's like one man, one vote. If you live in a district where your vote doesn't count, right. then your vote is lost. Yeah, the and, question really is if you can press it so far in a partisan direction that it becomes mm -hmm. 
you're cheating people out of their votes. And that's, again, where Texas led the way by creating these intensely partisan districts that other states began to model themselves on. Right. Well, the other, the flip to Karen's CD23 in Texas is we have 36 congressional districts and one of them is competitive. Right. Right. Yeah. I've got a question with the mic. With, oh, sorry. Great. And then we'll go right in front and then right here. Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Anadelia. And uh, I have a theory that uh, public uh, education isn't well financed uh, because of the growing minority populations. And that basically boils down to racism. Uh, you can always have an easy scapegoat to blame your problems on if you can point well, it's those people's fault. They don't want to lift themselves up. Uh, and so we, it, it's, it just feeds on itself. Your thoughts on that? I, I think that there is a, this voucher movement that was making an effort to come through this past session of the legislature is a reflection of the deep distrust and dislike of public education. And uh, it's been squeezed and squeezed and squeezed for years. And we're, and, and, and you know, not just the K through 12, but the university system. Now, you know, the, the state is supposed to bear more than 50% of the cost of a university education. And it's what, 36%? Well, it depends on the school. Here it's at UT, it's about 22%. Well, you're paying for the difference, and it, it's you know it it it's, it excludes people. Uh, it you know it's a, if if you were to take the supposition that they wanted to squeeze out minorities and poor from education, how would they go about it? Well, they would withdraw the subsidies for education, and and they would make it uh, they would be, begin to fund private schools through vouchers. Right. Hi, I'm over from Houston. I want to first thank you for always taking my questions on the online tripcast. It's really cool. Uh, oh, via Facebook? This, this may yeah. be the last Good one. Deal. Let's see what you got. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is kind of actually spanning from my last question on online. Uh, but I'm also um, curious to what you two think on um, the effects of Harvey. Basically, my idea is that uh, after the Galveston flood, there was a lot of political action um, that was bipartisan. So I'm wondering how that may favor in the next legislative session or in elections coming up. Let's start with the election because Ross had a brilliant column today on this particular issue. Yeah. Well, I should have read it. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it, Ross. You know, a midterm election in a presidential year is often about the president. You know, it doesn't matter who it is, it's often about the president and everybody who's been getting ready for 2018 in Texas, probably in the other 49 states too, has been trying to figure out exactly how they were going to be affected by the Trump gravitational field. And I think what happened in Texas uh, three and a half weeks ago with Hurricane Harvey, um, that was finally something big enough to elbow Trump out of the way. And I think chances are very good that in Texas at least, in, you know, in big parts of the state, Harvey's going to be, and how Harvey is handled is going to be the question in people's minds when they go to vote. If in a year from now, if in September of 2018, voters in Houston and in the Gulf Coast region and around are unhappy with the way the recovery has worked, you're gonna see that at the polls and it's not gonna matter whether Donald Trump's popular or not. But is that gonna to extend to things like zoning and things like 
not building that house development back exactly policy. where it was. And I mean, th those are really city issues, and those yeah. are the things I think you're going to see sort of referendums on at the local level. I mean, what's what's interesting so far is that there has really been um, it, it's been very. Uh, down the middle, people have really been getting along on this issue. I mean, you haven't seen the governor going after Sylvester Turner, the mayor of right. Houston, or Sylvester Turner and the county judge getting into it, who's a Republican. Um, I, and, think you know, I think it's still soon enough after a disaster that everybody's playing really nice. I think the question that has got to be posed to voters at some point, is it wise for us to be led by climate change skeptics? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's one thing to go out and go to the refugee center and, and videotape your shaking hands and stuff like that. It's another to simply withdraw any support for uh, moderating the use of, of, of carbon-based fuels. And it's, it's actually, I think, politically unwise because uh, Secretary James Baker and George Schultz, you know, have right. started this initiative to, uh, to, to impose a carbon tax. And they've gotten a number of the oil executives to sign off on it. The oil companies are more progressive than our politicians are on this particular issue. They understand they have to service the whole world. And so they just want something to be uh, instituted that they can understand and rely upon. This is where I think Texas is taking, you know, taking care of our communities. We do a good job of it, and Republicans and Democrats in Houston, Ed Emmett, the county judge, is a Republican, and Sylvester Turner, the mayor, right. is a Democrat. It's a wonderful example of bipartisanship. But, you know, I think that I would like to see in this next campaign the question posed about where do you stand on the future of our climate? Because cities like Houston and all the Port Arthur, Beaumont, all of those cities are in peril. Yeah, I think a lot of the, the 2018 election is going to turn. I think some of it will turn on that. I think um, what Karen's talking about is going to be a bigger thing. Can I rebuild my house? Can I rebuild it here? Why are they rebuilding that there? Am I going to have to pay for well, that? Well, yesterday I drove through Meyerland in, uh, in, in Houston, and uh, you know, not all the debris is, you know, in fact, they don't know where to put it. You know, right. the, uh, right. So there's tons of debris still there. But what really impressed me when I was going through the streets, about half the houses had for sale signs. Wow. Cheap. We're going to grab one more, and it's going to be, it's right here, and it's going to be a quick question and a really quick answer. Yep. Hi, um, my name is Ishmael Buabara, and um, you mentioned Texas 23. I live in 23, and mm -hmm. ever since uh, when, when Trump got elected, we saw these grassroots efforts come up, we, like Texas, the indivisible efforts and everything, and my family has been really involved with, uh, like, uh, trying to. So you know, you said turn to 23 back to, to Democrats. So, as we go forward in, in trying the, with the efforts, what's the, what do you think is the most important advice to, uh, you know, to keep these efforts in mind and to keep them going forward without them fizzling out? Well, it it goes back to my 750,000 number. I mean, people have to show up and vote. <laughs> That, that, that district is drawn so that it flips on turnout, and it's been like watching a trout on a sidewalk. It just, every few <laughs> years, it goes like that. And what happens is in presidential years, turnout is larger, and that's tended to favor Democrats over the last 12 years. And in non-presidential years, turnout's been smaller, and that's tended to favor Republicans. So it's just gone like that. Last time uh, was really a bit of an upset. Um, Pete Gallego lost to um, Will Hurd. You have to say Will Hurd has the upper hand in a non-presidential year. And it's, he's running as a very uh, 
as a Republican who is very much disconnected from Trump and from, you know, in many ways, he's, his voting record is uh, one of the most independent in the Congress. I mean, he knows. He knows what it's going to take to survive. Yeah. Right. Anti-wall, for starters, yeah. right. Right. right? One of the first to come out. Well, Wendy Davis, I had, thought, had the most succinct uh, statement about this, which is that Texas is not a red state. It's a non-voting blue state. Right. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we are going to have a big round of applause for our first round of panelists. And we're going to do a little switch up. <laughs> And make sure you go see Larry's band later. Uh, and uh, what time? 8:45. All right. Uh, and we're going to invite up our two additional panelists, who I believe are in the audience right here. I'll introduce them as they're making their way up, and you can give them a round of applause as I do. Our two panelists are San Antonio Mayor and former City Councilman Ron Nirenberg. Came up the road. Following him, we have State Senator Don Huffines, Republican of Dallas, a real estate developer by trade. Uh, we are very grateful for him for standing in this evening. Thank you, too. Thanks for making the drive up from San Antonio. That drive is horrible. <laughs> we know. Do you, yeah. do you both agree that you hate I-35 from, from different ends? And thank you, reasons, uh, yeah. thank you for making the drive down from Dallas. But thank you. How was sure. yours? Your commute? What, Your 35, I-35 commute, how was it? Actually, know? I flew on Southwest. All right, even better. <laughs> a market improvement. Uh, well, for, for this part of the conversation, I really want to talk to the two of you about issues that are, that are equally important to you, and it's local control. And this has been a huge issue for the Texas legislature. This has been a huge issue for cities. And I think on some particular issues, you have some different takes. So, uh, Mayor, I was hoping you could start us off by telling us a little bit about this session in particular and the areas in which you felt like, you know, San Antonio got hit pretty hard. Well, I mean, it's very clear that the local control that was under attack during the regular session, all the things, the goodies that they couldn't get during that regular session were exactly why they want to reconvene in the special session. We were thankfully uh, greeted by more bipartisanship and willing to compromise in the special session than we were in the regular. Um, in particular, uh, issues of tree preservation, of the ability for cities to grow revenue as their communities grow, uh, issues of the authority of annexation and land use controls, and even the things that are beneficial on its face to the state, such as protecting our military installations, were under attack. Um, my uh, faithfully anti-city Senator Huffines, to my right, um, well, was one of provide. <laughs> provided one of the most egregious bills of them all, which was that he was trying to do away with home rule cities altogether. And I'm quick to remind folks that, you know, San Antonio is celebrating 300 years. We were around a lot longer and doing just fine before the legislature was even born. <laughs> all right, well, this turned into a de facto debate, so it's your turn. <laughs> Well, that escalated. Yeah. <laughs> Ross and I will just sit back here. <laughs> well, I'll say this, that I look at uh, my lens that I govern through is I feel like the lens of the Founding Fathers. 
Uh, they knew that the biggest threat to their God-given liberty was the very government they were creating. That's why they wrote a constitution that essentially restrains government. And it, I believe in personal responsibility. I, I believe in the power of the individual. I don't have anything against cities at all. Uh, to the contrary, I, I've, I've been to probably a hundred different city council me meetings in my career, maybe more than that. Uh, I, I, I'm sympathetic to cities. They have a, a, a tough job in balancing things out. But when a city gets out of, the, out of what I consider the, uh, the fairway, or they get out of the main lane of traffic, and they start veering off into different things besides running the infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the first responders, things like that, then, the, then there's a reason for the legislature to step up and, and well, do something. If I can respond to that, you know, the, the fundamental question is, who decides when a city overreaches? Is it the state? Is it the, the senator who maybe drives through San Antonio or flies through San Antonio once a year, twice a year, four times a year, I don't know? Or is it the local constituents who actually vote for their local elected officials to take care of their interests? Um, the, the, the defense of the individual, I totally get. And that's why we continue to meet and greet and talk with our constituents, our voters, in in our grocery stores, in our neighborhoods, uh, at our HOA meetings, and the suggestion that he knows better than my voters is downright offensive. Well, so what's the definition of local? I mean, Ross, obviously, this has been a, become a really big buzzword in the last couple of sessions in particular. Right. You know, I think we've, we've even asked the governor, so, you know, where's sort of the line drawn with local control? And often he says, in certain cases, the state is the most local. Well, so it how seems do you define to be, it? Well, it seems to be the answer is it depends. So, you know, for a while the answer was, you know, when you get a patchwork of laws passed by city councils that have not gone to the voters for this, and then we had two particular high-profile cases where voters in the city of Denton first on fracking a few years ago, and then the city of Austin on ride-hailing companies um, decided that they wanted a set of regulations. In Denton, they said no fracking in the city limits. In Austin, um, they said fingerprinting. Sorry? In Austin, they said fingerprinting. In right. Austin, they, did, they wanted to, the ride-hailing companies mm -hmm. to do the same thing the taxi companies were doing. And in those cases, the legislature overruled the voters. They, you know, previously, they'd been overruling cities. So when you, you know, get to these things, you kind of, you know, there's, there's not really a standard. It seems to be it depends. Um, it was really hard for the legislature to get uh, texting while driving law in place. It got vetoed once by the governor. Uh, it got accepted the second time, uh, I guess, by a different governor. Yep. <laughs> uh, change, change governors, you get a different signature. It, it doesn't seem to be a hard line somewhere. Is there a bright line? For you? Well, uh, there is. First, I'd like to say, Evan, that the legislature... Oh, don't call me Evan. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate insult. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have to call you Philip. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> but the legislature does... We, we, we're not looking to micromanage cities. We're really not. We, we're, I'm not. I'm certainly not looking at that. We've got a lot to do. We don't, want, we don't need to micromanage cities. But it, it, to the contrary, though, is that cities, this legislature created the cities, right? I think it's unarguable that we have the, not only the authority, but we have the obligation to regulate cities. When they went home rule, when the courts ruled on home rule in around 1910 or so, something like that, that it was very clear that the courts ruled. That they, that, they, that they do not have to go back to the legislature anymore to get permission, but the legislature still has authority to regulate cities, even if, even if they're home rule. So 
it, it's something that we, we take seriously and something that we're going to continue to do. What's the trigger? I mean, how different do you let cities be? You know, El Paso's not Dallas, it's not San Antonio, it's not Amarillo. How, how far from the norm are you going to let cities be before the state comes in and cracks the whip? Well, I've got three, three legs to my stool that I look at real quick, and that is if I believe in liberty, okay? So I want to make sure that we don't give up our liberty, our local liberty. I look at local control as more control. And I'm not big on control, whether it's the state controlling us or the federal government controlling us or the, or the political subdivisions controlling us. Wait, wait a minute. But the state does not have a, a monopoly on this word liberty. I'm sorry. We also look out for liberty, which is why we're standing up for our local constituents. Yeah. I agree. Or whatever. Look. We also, have a, we also have a constitution and we don't have direct democracy in this country because the founders of our country, then our founders of our country knew that just because you have to have a constitution to work around direct democracy. But can I finish real quick? Yes. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. The other thing I was going to say was when cities violate state law, all right, we need recourse, all right? The citizens need recourse and the business community needs recourse. And when cities to answer your question, what is local control? When cities get outside the fairway and they start regulating business environments, start trying to do away or hurt the economic miracle of Texas is, and we start uh, hurting their job growth, we start hurting businesses, that's when the legislature is really going to look at it. And also when I look at it, is we need recourse for the citizens against any government that from the heavy hand of government starts slapping them around, they need recourse. So if they break the law, state law. So, so in speaking of the heavy-handed government, where does the sanctuary cities legislation fall in all of this? Because we're having a conversation about, you know, where, where local control begins and ends. What's your take on why that's a state responsibility, for example, and not a, a city responsibility? Or why that is a city responsibility? My question? Yes, please. Well, I think that's very simple. If you, we don't want criminals, alien criminals, out on the streets. It's simple as that. The state has a reason. We, we have an obligation Excuse to put me. Hey, folks, please, if you're in here, I'm the moderator and you're respectful. Thank you. I, I think it's pretty clear. What, how, does, how does the city of San Antonio Well, react? I'd like to go back to the senator's big, bright line, which is the U.S. Constitution. It doesn't matter what the legislature does. If it breaches its own responsibilities, whether it's towards the local governments or towards their responsibility to uphold the U.S. Constitution, there is a problem. With regard to SB4, that has been the opinion of the court, the federal court, is that that law is unconstitutional. Why do you continue to push it if it has been? Well, I think the AG's appealed that. We'll see what the appellate system says. But if, you know, if the courts, at the end of the day, if the court's rule is unconstitutional, then it is. And, and with regard to, to business regulation or, you know, public safety issues, every single business leader in the state that wasn't scared of you came out and said how bad something like a bathroom bill would be to our state economy. They've even said things such as that about the fact that 20% or more of the workforce of the state of Texas is immigrants. They've even talked about the fact that DACA would cost, the loss of DACA uh, over a 10-year period would, loss, would equal a loss of about $500 billion. When the experts who are suggesting that businesses are going to be impacted say you're wrong, what happens? You're, answer, you're asking me the question yes. now? Okay. 
when the business experts say it, they're wrong. When, like, when businesses yeah. come in mass to the legislature and suggest that this law would put a hurt on the Texas economy, or when local leaders who yeah. are generating the sales tax and and the revenue that the state needs to operate, for instance, San Antonio sent about $26 million mm -hmm. to you last year. Well, I would say when that we, I say, about, uh, for, you're talking about the illegal immigrant community? No, I'm talking about business leaders. Yeah, but what are you talking about that they're upset about? The fact that you're killing their business. Okay. If you're, if you're talking about illegal immigration, let's just talk about that. Our, our, let's talk about the impact that is on our education system. TEA, our best estimates we have right now is that four to 500,000 students we have out of the 5.2 million in this state are here illegally, not counting anchor babies. That's $5 billion Texas taxpayers are saddled with annually. I'm not saying not to educate them. We're going to educate them. But there is a cost to this process. We've got 20,000, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of people, 17,000, 20,000 in TDC that are here illegally. We have health care costs, so this isn't, I don't, I don't know exactly what statistics you're talking about, but it's not a free ride. Mayor, I'm curious, how is the conversation around uh, DACA nationally translating in your city right now? I mean, what are the expectations for how this will play out federally? Well, San Antonio is a leading indicator of all of the leading indicators because of our demographic makeup. Uh, so it is, is a huge concern for us locally, as well as it is nationally. Um, the concern is that, just like SB4, it's going to force a large and growing population into the shadows that makes our communities less safe, that makes them less educated, that makes it much more difficult for people to come out of a cycle of poverty. Because we aren't just talking about immigrants who are here alone. We're talking about mixed families, many of whom have been here for over a decade who simply want to enlist in the military, get a job, go to school, and be productive citizens. Senator, how, what has your response been to watching the president's negotiations around this, his conversations, I guess, over Chinese food with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi? I mean, do, do, do hardline Republicans look at this and think that he's wavering or going back on promises that he made? Well, I'm not sure what other Republicans think uh, on the issue. Uh, but look, it, I'm not for amnesty. Uh, for DACA, I'm not. Um, it, it, there are sad circumstances across the board on that, on those situations, but they don't need to be mad at the United States of America. They need to be mad at their parents from smuggling them in here. Do you think that the, the that Hurricane Harvey? This is a little bit sideways, but that Hurricane Harvey and the way that it's been handled has changed the conversation about state and local control in in this way. I mean. Um, you know, it changed, it changed the subject from local officials responding to a disaster and the state coming in as a help rather than the state coming in with a big hand. At the very first of this, um, the governor said, you know, they ought to evacuate Houston and the Democratic mayor and the Republican county judge said, no, that's a really bad idea. Let us handle this. And the locals have primacy, it looks like, as we go forward in this thing. Is that changed the conversation around this, or are we still going to be in this running debate over local control in the Texas legislature that's gone for probably three sessions now? Well, you want me to answer Either first? one sure. of you, yeah. God help us if we can't cooperate during a natural disaster. Thank goodness we are doing that. Um, we are cooperating as well as any state in the nation with regard to relief and Harvey and all the other uh, wildfires and other issues that are happening. The problem is, 
we consider emergencies to be when the catastrophe has already happened. We also have an emer emergencies in cities and in places all around the state to prevent disasters from occurring, from flooding, from wildfire, from man-made disasters that are gonna trouble our economy. Um, we have to actually put that kind of bipartisan cooperation into things like allowing for more green space to be uh, maintained while communities develop and urbanize so that we have less flooding, we have less stormwater damage. To do, you, do you look at Houston and think that Houston made mistakes leading up to Harvey? Yes. Every urban community in the country has been making mistakes uh, because our old way of thinking about stormwater control was where it falls, move it off as quickly as possible. That's the, that's the damage we do with pavement, yeah. is that once it, the rainwater hits, it moves quickly somewhere else, and someone else is often impacted. We, in the city of San Antonio, have been more proactive and more focused on resilience, and so we've passed into code things like low-impact development. And those things are, are what will help us control the damage that we do through our own lack of forward-thinking policy. And that's what we need help with from the state. But all of that impact and all the ability to control that is going to be at the local level. So, uh, Senator, you're obviously a real estate developer and you're, um, when you're not down in Austin at the legislature. I mean, are those the kinds of regulations that local governments should have the authority to put in place? Well, yes, to a certain extent. You, they have to be mindful that there are people that are going to be damaged monetarily in a lot of these decisions, whether you own the land or your grandparents gave you that land and all of a sudden the city comes in and, and it slaps some rules on there that says, you know, what can be developed and what can't, and, and with the, particularly like the tree ordinance, that's one of my pet peeves, but, and we can talk about that if you want to. But yeah, the, the city has a role in that, of course, for flood protection. Yeah, and it, it, you saw with Hurricane Harvey a great, uh, a great, Tech, what tech makes Texas great, where we all came together and helped each other, and they weren't all relying on the government. They were relying on each other, their neighbors. You know, one of the, two of the things that the legislature looked at in the special session, I guess in the regular session before that, but they were in the governor's 20 items in the special session, were state restrictions on local annexations and state restrictions on local code authority, on permitting and those kinds of things. Specifically, when you have a case like Houston and you're going to decide what it is that needs to be rebuilt, what it is that needs to be remade, and what, importantly, it is that shouldn't be rebuilt or remade. Should that be a local decision, a state decision? Where does that fall, either one of you? I think it should be a, a, a more of a local decision. I mean, you, it was very hard to anticipate a thousand-year storm. I mean, even the Corps of Engineers don't run models that high. So, I mean, th this was a major, major event. It was very hard to predict, uh, particularly when they're letting the water out of those reservoirs. So. Uh, there was a lot of things out of, you know, very unusual circumstances. If it is local responsibility, then let the locals have the authority to do it. The problem is, in your current life and in your former life, you have pushed back against that control. You have forced cities to roll back ordinances that allow us to have that green space. Trees are more than important, are more than just important for property values and for making houses look pretty. They're also for controlling stormwater. They're important for air quality. They're important for any number of reasons. And the legislature needs to understand that and listen to the experts that are giving us data on that. But unfortunately, in your version of the legislature, ignorance is not only bliss, it's the law. Well, that's, that's interesting you say that. 
The legislature is very aware of your arguments, Mayor. Believe me, they're very aware of it, and they've rejected those arguments. Look, it's a private property rights issue. Look, you overlay your tree ordinances out into your ETJ, as a lot of cities do. Do the people in the ETJ get the vote for you? I'm sorry? Do the people in the ETJ vote for you? What's an ETJ? Your extraterritorial Extra jurisdiction. jurisdiction. Yeah. And a big city like San Antonio, it's five miles from the farthest point of the city limits line. So if you strip annex, strip annex down a highway or a road, it's five miles all the way around. And it's included. Citizens in of Texas yeah. within the ETJ need responsible government leadership that they're lacking in the state, in the state legislature. Well, I That's think that, why we oh, have so a tree ordinance in the ETJ is because state leaders before you thought it was a good idea to protect our military installations, to make sure that generations of Texans don't grow up with poor air quality, to make sure that urban communities and some of the poorest areas of Texas aren't inundated with stormwater and lose their homes because people in the ETJ are listening to you and not them. Let me reframe the question a little bit. If, if the legislature had passed the annexation tree um, code and uh, planning and zoning regulations that they were talking about in the regular session, would the response to Houston be um, affected by that? Would the response in a city to a situation like what Houston's in right now be affected? Their ability to respond to it. It's, so there is no stormwater system, I think, in the country, let alone Texas, that could handle 30 inches of rain in 24 hours or 50 inches of rain in two days. Um, San Antonio has spent half a billion dollars over the last 10, 15 years on upgrading stormwater uh, systems. Our Riverwalk, which all of you have, I'm sure have, have seen, uh, was originally a stormwater control system to keep downtown from flooding. We had a massive 500-year flood in 1998. We have come a long way since then, but had we had 25 inches of rain, had that storm drifted, just a little bit farther west, our main highway through the center of our city would have been underwater. We have to do better, and it's not simply building more culverts that move the water further downstream faster. It's actually developing more resilient strategies that seem to be the bane of the current legislature. Would your ability to respond have been affected by those laws? Would it to respond? Yeah, we after have a storm, you can't response. stop. You can't. So, no, you can't stop the storm. What Houston's going to be doing over the next yeah. two years? Had the legislature passed those laws, would Houston's ability to respond over the next two years have been limited? I don't think it would have been limited, okay. no. I mean, disaster response is not a problem for the public safety and you know, infrastructure that we have in, in cities and in the state. The problem is, how can we avoid more disasters? All right, well, we're going to open it up to questions, so raise your hands if you've got one. Uh, quickly, I just want to hear from the senator. What do you think the chances are that your twin brother gets elected to the Senate, and would it be a little weird having your twin in the same chamber? <laughs> no, it won't be weird because we work together almost every day in our, in our real life, which is uh, in the development business. So I'm looking forward to him be, being in the Senate. We need him there, and I'm excited for him to be there. Sounds good. All right, who's got the mic? Question? Right here. Thank you. And make sure it's a question. That means it has a question mark at the end. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so in 2014, um, Texas Republicans, specifically the governor, um, ran campaigns railing against federal overreach. So in turn, isn't it fairly hypocritical to try to enforce the will of the state over the cities? And I guess that's the senator. It's not to me. <laughs> What's the difference in, this, in the federal government? Is it hypocritical if the states are constantly fighting yeah. the feds for the state to be saying? Well, very good question. And 
the way I respond to that is the states created the federal government. The authority of the federal government really comes from the states. We decided to join the union, and, and, and the ultimate authority in our country rests with the state legislatures. We are the ones that really, really dictate everything that happens in the United States of America. We set everything from how the parties run and how the electors are elected, and uh, we certainly oversee all the political subdivisions we create. That's why they're called subdivisions of the state. Well, and just to clarify, cities are not subdivisions of the state. Counties are. We granted you the authority to recognize us. Well, I, I, I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's correct. The, 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 the state legislature We all weren't the there at the beginning, of course. Well, but it, wasn't at the be it wasn't at the beginning. Well, maybe it was Evan around was. The, it was after yeah. the, the turn of the 20th century. <laughs> so. He's not up here, I can say it. <laughs> All right, who's next? Who's got the mic? Yes, ma'am, right here. Uh, well, let's go to some folks who have, let's try some folks who haven't asked questions first. Yep. Sorry. Hello, I'm Heather Olivia Shannon. I'm a student at Texas Wesleyan University and reporter for The Rambler. Um, my question is for Senator Rawlings. What? Huffines, right? Huffines. Yep. Huffines. Oh, that's Huffines. okay. Don't worry. Sorry, I just want to make sure. You can I give him any right. answer and they'll blame it on Senator <laughs> just Rawlings. Just call him Senator. Yes. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. also, also, there's a lot of Confederate statues coming down in Texas. Um, what's your advice to people um, wanting them to stay or wanting them to come down? And do you think this is erasing history from Texas? Well, I don't, think, I don't think there should be a rush to judgment on the statues. I think they've been up a long time. I think we should have civil discourse about it. I think everybody should take a deep breath. And everybody's voices need to be heard on this issue. When you rush to judgment on something, a lot of people aren't heard, and, they're gonna, and it, it causes conflict. So I don't see any reason why we can't just take our time, discuss it, and the end result might be the same. Maybe everyone decides, the city councils decide to remove them anyway. But this, in the middle of the night, and, and this, this kind of seems like a knee-jerk reaction doesn't sit well with a lot of folks. We agree with that. That's why we took our time. There you go. <laughs> yes, sir, back there. Yep. Oh, here, oh, the guy, yes, there, good. Okay, so one of the things that came up in this um, conversation, and I'm getting, my question specifically is for um, the senator, is this idea of local control versus individual liberty. However, with the SB4 issue, when we consider the fact that most of immigration law is enforced on the federal level, wouldn't allowing local autonomy be a way to check against the federal overreach that you talk about the states checking against, thereby preventing the tyrannical government that some concerns have been voiced about in this conversation? Good use what? of question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, I think the legislature, and I certainly look at, at, at the law, is, is really a security issue. And that if you've got criminal aliens that need to be detained with the ICE detainer, they need to be detained, and the local community needs to notify ICE to that effect. I think it's just simple as that. Go ahead. Uh, my question revolves around what may be a, a gap in the representation, and that is around county authority. Um, we've talked about the problem in Houston, and we've talked about the, the local ability to moderate and control stormwater, but much of that jurisdiction is unincorporated county. Mm -hmm. 
Can you speak to maybe the, the missing link of counties having some additional controls to regulate those stormwater conversations? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that we have evolved. Local cities, cities have the authority, home rule cities have broad annexation authority, and that's important authority. The, the, the use of annexation for older cities, for larger cities, is evolved. It's not simply just to gain more territory. In fact, it's sometimes the economies of scale of that are upside down. We want our community, our whole area, to thrive. The problem is, what is most important sometimes about annexation is allowing us to, to allowing people to, to uh, have some authority over the land use to make sure that the deleterious uses of land aren't affecting downstream communities. Being able to protect trees, protect military bases, um, allow for green space. There, we have an aquifer that's six counties wide over our ETJ. And we want to make sure that that doesn't get paved over so that people have water, not just in our community, but downstream as well. Those things are important. We don't necessarily need to annex to do that. We, could, we do now, but the re reason why we don't is because it lacks that authority out in the, in the county. I would be all for, and you would see many city leaders uh, step up with me to allow counties to have more authority over building codes and for uh, zoning authority, development authority. I think that's a great idea, um, but it would require the legislature to grant that authority. Time for one more good one. Hello, my name is Shamora. I'm from Texas Westland in Fort Worth. Um, my question is for the senator. Um, as you guys discussed HB4 and um, deciding that you were going to enforce um, you know, the immigration you know, laws and that sort of thing. Did you think about how the immigrants actually um, contribute to the society or to our um, actual local government by uh, state taxes or sort of things? How did you guys decide you were going to replace the money that we lost had you kicked these people out of the state? Well, that's a, le a very uh, legitimate question and that's why we were looking at that. I, I submitted a bill last session to try to do an accounting. Uh, for the comptroller to what is the cost of illegal immigration and the pro and and so uh, it didn't it didn't make it all the way through but there is cost to it I mean to illegal immigration I already mentioned education health care border security I mean, we got a lot of cost with it all right well please join me in thanking my panelists including Mr. Ramsey here thank you And I just want to remind you, uh, if you like listening to the Tribcast every week, please do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes, especially if it's nice. Uh, and if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. That, that district is drawn so that it flips on turnout, and it's been like watching a trout on a sidewalk. It just, every <laughs> two years, it goes like that. <laughs>